Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Revelation chapter 17. We'll begin in verse 1, and I'll read through a great portion of this because there's a, the new vision that we are seeing in the, the text is going to stretch all the way to chapter 19. But there are some specific things that we need to see and that we need to learn. And today we're going to begin to try to understand more about who this mysterious woman is and who this scarlet beast is that she is riding upon. But we're in Revelation chapter 17, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. This is John writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, having seen a vision from the Lord. He says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a, a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And as we see here, this is a, a passage that is hard to wrap our minds around. It is filled with symbolism. It is filled with imagery, and it is for us. You have given it to us to understand, and, and blessed are those who understand the words that are written in this 
vision, in this revelation, in this apocalypse. That's what you tell us in the beginning of the book. So would you help us now and help me as I teach to explain what I see and how it connects to other passages of Scripture? And would you fill us with confidence as we not only have some understanding of your word, but we see where it points. It points us to a trust in the Lamb, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who will conquer. And those who are with him will conquer at his side. That's talking about us. So Lord, would you help us now? Would you accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Would you draw us to the truth? And would you let the truth set us free? And for those who are among us who don't yet know you, their hearts have not been shown their sin and their great offense to you, would you allow the gospel to penetrate their hearts today? Let the gospel seed be sown and let it bear fruit for your glory. Have your way with us and accomplish your purpose, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On July the 6th, 1553, so let your minds go back in time. July the 6th, 1553, Edward, who was the king of England, died. He was succeeded by his eldest sister, whose name was Mary, and she was the daughter of King Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. And as soon as Mary obtained the crown, she began to do something that many people expected, especially those within the church. She began to pull down all that her father and her brother had built over the prior 40 years. The new queen was a very zealous Catholic, where Edward and Henry, for different reasons, but they were united in this, they they were Protestant. But Mary despised the Protestant movement. She sought vengeance upon church leaders who sanctioned the disgraceful divorce of her mother, So she overturned laws enacted to distance Rome from England, Rome meaning the Roman Catholic Church. She restored Catholic mass in the church and made it mandatory. She banished foreign Protestants from her realm and she stripped the leaders of the Church of England of their offices. She reinstated heresy laws and heresy laws allowed non-Catholics to be burned at the stake simply for being non-Catholic. Mary had almost 300 people executed, most of them by burning at the stake, and most of them simply for the crime of believing the gospel as it was declared by the Protestant reformers. Mary's reign was relatively short. It only lasted about five years, a little over five years, but in that short amount of time, she would earn her title of Bloody Mary, and she cemented her role in history as an enemy of Christ and an enemy of the church. But Mary was not the first to be an enemy of the church, and she was not the last to set her sights on harming the people of God in the world. And as we read this revelation, over the course of the revelation, we have We've seen this battle unfolding, a battle between the forces of darkness that are at work in the world and the forces of God's grace and truth who are also at work in the world. There are the, the, there's Christ and the church, and there are the enemies of Christ and the church. And right here in, in chapter 17 and chapter 18, we are going to see the enemies of God who have been introduced to us over the course of the revelation, we are going to see them finally meet their end. 
in the judgment that Christ brings. That's where we are at this particular point in the book. But let me just remind you of the enemies that they that John has revealed to us, described to us along the way as we've been studying this book. First, we met the dragon, the ancient serpent from the garden, who tempted Eve in the beginning and sought to devour the newborn child in Revelation chapter 12. You remember him, the great dragon. Second, we met the beast from the sea. It was a beast that was crowned with ten horns and seven heads, covered with blasphemous names. It's the same beast that we see here. And we first were introduced to that beast in Revelation 13. And then we were introduced to another beast, the beast from the earth who opened his mouth to blaspheme the Lord. This beast is referred to as the false prophet. And together you have the unholy trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. Those are the three enemies that we've seen, but there are more. Later on, we were introduced to Babylon the Great. And here we read about her being described as an immoral woman. Babylon is closely associated with the beast from the sea, which is why she's shown to be sitting atop its back in the passage we just read. And then finally, we see the fifth enemy of the people of God and of the church, and it is those men and women who dwell on earth. Or as it's described a little in in chapter 17, those whose names are not found written in the book of life. These are those who reject the Lord and who bear the mark of the beast because they worship him. Those are the five enemies of Christ and the church as they've been revealed to us in the study of the Revelation. And over the next few chapters, we are going to see them fall. Chapter 17 and 18 zoom in on those enemies and show us how God is going to pour out his judgment upon them. But before we see their judgment, their final end, James wants to tell us something about their nature. He wants to tell us something about their their history. He wants us to understand them more. And he wants us to understand them more because they are active in the world today and their fall is yet to come. So even though he wants us to be confident that they will meet their match, they have met their match in Christ, and they will meet their end, they are still at work among us. So, along the way, we're going to be introduced to a lot of different characters. In that one first passage here, verses 1 through 6, there are six different characters that we're introduced to. We were introduced to an angel who was one of the bowl angels. Why is one of the bowl angels now doing something different? We'll find out about that. We learn a little bit more about the sinful woman covered in wealth and seduction. We learn about the kings of the earth who've been seduced by the woman and the men and women who dwell on earth who are drunk in the wine of her sexual immorality. We're going to learn about the scarlet beast again. And then finally, we'll learn more about the the saints and the martyrs that he mentions in verse 6. So there's six characters that we learn just in those six verses. Look, there is a ton of symbolism here. And it's ours to understand it or to seek to. So that's our goal. There's much for us to learn and it's going to help us to understand the battle we face in this life. So let's study this. Let's look first back at verse 1 and let's try to understand the significance of this angelic guide for John. John tells us, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment on the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now, the fact that 
the individual who's going to guide John through the next series of visions. By the way, this new series of visions begins right here in chapter 17, verse 1. It will end in chapter 19 and verse 10. So we're in a new series of visions here. And the reason that it's going to be one of these individuals is to help show us that what we're reading in 17, 18, and 19 is connected back to the bowls. In fact, the sixth and the seventh bowls which are poured out upon the beast and upon the earth, these are, that's what we're learning about in these two chapters. It's like John wants to zoom us in on the things we've already seen. In chapter, or in chapter 16, when we saw the bowls poured out, it was just a thumbnail. Well, now we're going to see the detail of what happened. So that's what we're doing. We're going back, and we're going to see it in greater detail. And this angel... Um, I mean, who better to describe to John the destruction upon the scarlet beast and the great prostitute than the one that God had tasked to pour out his wrath upon them? That's why there is this connection. And the text tells us that this angel, this bowl angel as I'll refer to him, carries John away into the wilderness or into a wilderness in the spirit. And that's language we've seen thus far. Uh, When John sees a vision, it's not uncommon early in the Revelation for it to say that he was in the Spirit and he saw this vision. So this is a spiritual vision. This is something that God allowed him to see. John has the veil of this world pulled back and he's allowed to see the spiritual reality behind what's taking place in the world. And So that's what this language is all about. And the fact that he's in the wilderness or taken out into the wilderness is is interesting. You may remember when we were first introduced to the beast, the beast or the dragon and the beast, they were seeking to devour the woman who was going to give birth to the child. Remember that in Revelation 12? And then the child was born and the child was taken up to heaven and then the woman was whisked away out into the wilderness. And it's almost like uh, John pushed, or God pushed pause on that story for John, and then he told him some other things, and now he brings him back to the wilderness, and he says, let me tell you how this is going to end. The church, which is representative of the woman, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, they're in the wilderness being protected by God, and the, the, the beast is still coming after them, but let me show you what's going to happen in the end. I'm coming for them too. So that's the picture, that's the big picture of what's happening here. And this bowl angel is going to guide John through all this. He's going to ask John questions along the way. He's going to explain things to John. But he's there to help him understand how God is going to judge this beast and Babylon herself. But who is that mysterious woman? Who, I mean, the woman's name is a mystery, but it's, it's not really that much of a mystery. Who is this sinful woman set to receive such judgment. Well, it's quite easy to see as we continue to read that she is referred to as Babylon, Babylon the Great, the mother of all immoral women, the one who holds the abominations of the earth. This is a reference to something we've been studying. It's not a reference to a city necessarily, but it's a reference to a a demonic power in the world that tends to work in those societies and in those cultures. The woman is symbolic of Babylon the Great. And we're told here that she sits on many waters. That's odd, but as you might expect, there is an Old Testament precedent here. John is using language that comes out of the Old Testament to describe Babylon. Here it is from Jeremiah chapter 51. 
And starting in verse 12, it says, Set up a standard against the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end has come. The thread of your life is cut. What Jeremiah was describing there was the destruction of actual Babylon. And what John is doing is he's pulling from that language and he's saying this symbolic representation of Babylon that that is an enemy of the church, she too is going to meet her end. But the description of her is important for us. The fact that she's, look, I'm going to try not to say some of the words that we see in this text uh, over and over and over again. So I'm going to use some euphemisms and some different terminology to help you as moms and dads. You can go and define those terms at home when you have your own time. But this immoral woman is seductive on purpose. She is meant to be. She's, John is showing the influence and the effect that she has. She is attempting to draw the people of God away from Christ. And, and Jesus even told us that that was going to happen in the days to come. There would be those who would try to even take away, if possible, the elect, the chosen people of God from their faith. And that's what she is doing. She is seductive and alluring. But make no mistake, this is a vision of her judgment. God has rendered his verdict upon her, and in the next few verses, John outlines something of her sins. So let's look, we've looked a little bit at the the angelic guide, now let's look at the mysterious woman. Back in verse 1, she is the great prostitute seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed immorality, sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So we've got three individuals there. We've got the woman, we've got the kings of the earth, and we've got those who dwell on the earth. But the woman is being described as an immoral individual. And that's not the first time that we see that in the scriptures. In fact, the prophets were not unaccustomed to referring to sinful cities as immoral women. Uh, The prophets gave this title to the city of Tyre in Isaiah chapter 23, verses 15 through 17. If you want to write that down and go check it out, you can. Uh, The prophets gave this title to Nineveh in Nahum chapter 3 and verse 4. Even Jerusalem was referred to in this way. As an immoral woman in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, and in Ezekiel. But the only place that this title of a sexually immoral woman is given to Babylon is here in the Revelation. And it's given long after the city had been destroyed, which means that Babylon is being used as a symbol of an anti-Christian and worldly society. And this is not new. If you're new, if you have this first time you've come in here, I've been teaching on this for weeks, trying to describe Babylon in these ways. We're not talking about an actual restored city here. We're talking about a city that is symbolic is being used symbolically of what's going on in, in worldly and ungodly societies right now. Now, the ancient city of Babylon was actually located on the Euphrates River, and it was known because it had canals that went out from the city so that its culture, its goods, its resources, and all those things could spread out into the region around them. And John is using this, this description of the woman. She, she sits on the many waters, and the whole idea there is that from the source of her immorality, her influence can spread all over the world. That's the picture that John is using. 
Babylon's influence is seen in that she causes the kings of the earth to commit sin with her. And she shares the wine, the intoxication of her sin with all those who dwell on the earth. And that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is a reference to those who have rejected Christ. We've seen that throughout the book. These are talking about unbelievers here. And let's think about that in our own context, right? We live in a culture where where sexual perversion has been normalized and just blasted for the purpose of influence through every form of media available. Sex before and outside of marriage is widely accepted as normal, and it has been that way for generations in our culture. Homosexuality has been declared a basic human right by our Supreme Court. Transgenderism and transsexualism have become this culture moment's most celebrated form of sexual rebellion, such that all of the things that we used to watch or all of the things that we used to put before our children, perhaps, are just completely going in that direction. In America, sexual immorality has been codified into law. It is being celebrated throughout the nation, and it is being exported throughout the world, all at taxpayer expense. Babylon is alive and well. These perversions have been made to look normal by our culture, and God's standards are being made to look obscene and oppressive and ancient. And the studies seem to indicate that with each new generation, the rate of accepting and practicing these forms of sin have doubled with each generation. From a single diseased host, sin can spread out and it can cause destruction throughout the world. That's the picture that this immoral woman represents. This vision shows how godless cities and godless ideas can influence others to commit sin, and then it can spread sin throughout the world. That's what John is showing. And in John's day, Rome was Babylon, right? In John's day, that center of sinful worldly society that was being spread throughout the empire, it was Rome. Rome had pagan temples everywhere, slave markets everywhere, uh, emperor worship was happening everywhere, the gladiatorial games were just idolizing death and destruction, and there were so many other sources of sinful entertainment. Rome was attractive, Rome was a place where people could go to get pleasure and could prosper, she was influential and her morals were spreading throughout the world at that time. I mean, think about it this way. We even use a phrase to show how influential Rome is. It goes like this. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. It's the same concept we're seeing here. And John would have us understand very clearly as the church, indulging in the sin of Babylon comes at a cost. There's more about the woman. Look at verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. In other words, she is wealthy. She is prosperous. And she holds in her hand a golden cup. And look at what the cup is full of. Abominations. The impurities of her sexual immorality. She is not hiding it. She is feasting on it. Celebrating it. Offering it to the world. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. The woman is mysterious, or at least John refers to her here 
as a mysterious woman, but her identity is something of an open secret because there isn't much mystery to her. She is a woman of great sin and ill repute. She is the mother of all of that. She is the queen bee, if you will, and her cup is filled with sin and abomination. She is dressed to the nine. She is dressed to impress and to seduce, and she doesn't hide what she has to offer. A cup filled with sin. And we know this because we know what it's like to live in a world where this is going on. We know that her temptations are hard to resist. She is the spirit of worldly seduction. And she has captured kings and most of those who dwell on the earth. She has intoxicated the people with her sinful wine. And she has great wealth and great power and great beauty, it seems. And she is a terror to the church. She is a terror to the church, both by persecuting us and by drinking the blood of those she murders. She is Babylon the Great, the symbolic and demonic center of worldly influence in the earth. Now let's think about our own modern equivalent to this. This is the symbol. How do we apply the symbol? Our modern cities have a similar type of influence and appeal. Even the city of Dallas. They promote greed and idolatry and materialism and immorality and worldly entertainment and they advertise these things on billboards as you drive into the city. Not hiding it at all. Through modern media, these temptations come straight into our homes, straight into our offices, straight into the palm of our hands. The world is seductive. It offers power, it offers pleasure, it offers comfort, but it will cost you more than a monthly fee. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? This book of Revelation, this vision from God is telling us that behind the seduction of the world is the demonic power that has been at work ever since the garden. Behind the city of Babylon stands that unholy trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. They are building the city. They are running its politics. They are fueling its entertainment district. They are spreading its ideas about sexuality and gender. And they aren't even trying to hide the fact of the demonic influence behind it. For goodness sakes, they, they, they had Satan performing at the Grammys this year. The veil has been removed for all who can see. But for those who dwell on the earth that are intoxicated with the wine of her immorality, they just celebrate it. And God is revealing this to us as the church so that we can be wise as serpents and innocent as doves so that we can see and we can know and we can understand and we can battle against those seductions and not be drawn away from our faith in the Lord. God is showing us in this book that Satan attacks the church in two main ways. The beast attacks with power and persecution. He aims to destroy our witness to the truth of Christ And he aims to force us to worship the beast. That's what he does. And the other way that he tempts us is through Babylon. And she attacks us with seduction, trying to destroy our purity through worldliness. Babylon and the beast are closely connected. In verse 3, the vision is John gets to see her. He's carried away and he sees the woman sitting on the scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. It's the same one we read about in Revelation 13. We'll read about him more in the weeks to come. 
The scarlet beast is the same one. He is the demonic power that is at work in the world. He has been given authority, according to Revelation 13, over every tribe, language, people, and nation. But he has no authority over those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. In other words, no matter what he can do to us, we are secure in Christ. So we walk through tribulations, yes. We walk through trials, yes. We face the temptation of this seductress, yes. But we are secure in the Lord. But together, the beast and the sinful woman, they want to keep sinners chained to their sinful lust, and they want to tempt Christians to abandon the narrow way in favor of momentary pleasure. And that brings us to verse 6. The last character that we see in this particular story And it's us. Look at verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is what she does. If there was any question about what Babylon aims to do to Christians, those questions are answered in this verse. Her goal is to destroy the church. She isn't trying to enlighten us with new progressive philosophies about the meaning of life and how the gospel applies. She is trying to destroy our faith and our lives. And many are being swept away by that right now. Many churches, many Christians are those who profess to be. And she's growing more and more intoxicated by the blood of Christians. She controls the masses of unbelieving people. She has them firmly in her grips, but she would prefer to dine on Christians. That's the point of the picture. It's not a pretty picture. And God is revealing this to us so that we can be prepared, so that we can know. And this is not even a new picture. The persecution of God's people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, has often come from worldly governments and their politicians and these godless philosophies that want to corrupt the people of God. Great world empires, along with their people, have sought to silence the church or to imprison the church. And first century Christians reading this revelation for the first time, they faced the very real threat of death under Roman rule or persecution from the pagan society they were living in. And that has been consistent from the first century when this was written all the way up until our own day. That's what she stands for. That's what she's after. They're looking for us. But the greatest weapon that this wicked woman uses against the church is her power of seduction. She wants to conquer the church through temptation to sin. And so, now that we've seen kind of what this passage is about, let's talk about how do we respond to it. What is the practical application for us? What can we take away from this? Jesus said this in Luke 17. He taught the disciples that temptation to sin is sure to come. Sure to come. Be prepared for it. But woe to those through whom it comes. In the garden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and the, the object that he used to tempt them was fruit, right? It's a simple story. We remember it. But what was his ultimate goal? It wasn't to get them to enjoy apples. It was to get them to reject the word of God and in, inject themselves into that position of authority and being able to determine what is right and what is wrong. That's the ultimate sin in the garden. Rebelling against God and desiring to put yourself in the place of God. Satan drew Eve's attention to something that was appealing, and then he used her desire to twist the truth and lead her and her husband into 
open rebellion against God. And the same is true for us today. That's how temptation comes. And that's what James was talking about. What is it that causes conflicts and quarrels? Is it not your desires, your pleasures inside you that are warring against you? Isn't that the problem? It's not the lines so much that God has drawn. It's your desire to cross those lines so that you can be in control. Satan dangles something before us that appeals to our flesh. Think about the, the immoralities of our culture and our world, the things on our phone, the things that we can hide and see, the things that we can go and drink, the things that we can go and taste, all of those things. That's the, the bait. But the hook goes a lot deeper. In the end, our desire for these pleasures will take us further and further away from obedience to God. The promise of pleasure, the promise of comfort, the promise of fame. I know that's big for our young people who who just want to get famous for a couple of minutes on Instagram or whatever and get as many clicks and likes as they can possibly get. And that is an alluring thing. And it can cause you to do some questionable things in order to gain that. But the promise of pleasure, the desire for comfort, the desire for fame, or the thrill of simply being rebellious. All of these desires dwell in our hearts and the enemy wants to entice us. That's what temptation is. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan minister, spoke of temptation in this way. Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait but to hide the hook. To present the, the golden cup and hide the poison that dwells within. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin. But he hides from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of that sin. By this device he deceived our first parents because Satan is a cheat giving an apple in exchange for paradise. Those momentary pleasures... Those momentary comforts are nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed in the days to come. Nor is it, does it compare to the joy of knowing Christ. So how do we battle against this temptation? How do we battle against this immoral woman? Well, there's many ways we can battle, and there's many strategies that we can look at, and we will look at those over the next couple of weeks, because we're not going to speed through this. But today, I want to talk about Battling against temptation in one specific way. We battle with the weapon of love. We battle with the weapon of love. And I want you to do something with me. I want you to turn over to 1 John chapter 2. If you're in Revelation still, just go to the left a little bit. Not that far. 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at verse 15, 16, and 17. John tells us that one of the ways that we battle against the temptations to worldliness is with what we set our affections upon. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John says this, familiar passage to most of us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Now it's interesting that there's two things happening here. There are two things that John tells us are vying for our affection, our, our desires and our love. One of them is the world. The world wants your love. And the other one is God, the Father. And any time that you have God put up against something else, the sin at stake is idolatry. So ultimately, loving the world is idolatry. There are two things vying for our attention, vying for our devotion, vying for our affection, God and the world. Love for the world directs our life in one way. It's very selfish, it's very self-centered. I want this, me, 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 right? I want to elevate my desires to the point of making them idols. And then on the other side is a love for the Father, and the love for the Father is going to direct us in another way. And that's the whole book of 1 John, by the way. If you love the world, you're going this way. But if you love the Father, then you will love the Son. And if you love the Father and you love the Son, then you will love the people of God. And so we battle against a love for the world with a love for the Father and a love for the Son and what Christ has done for us on the cross and a love for one another. And that shows itself in so many different ways. Confessing sin to one another and being held accountable. Strengthening one another, discipling one another to see the, the deceptions and the seductions of the world and to see the beauty and the glory of pursuing Christ. If we give our love to the world, we allow our hearts to be consumed by the desire of worldly things. We haven't just made a mistake. We become a worshiper, a worshiper of those things. Amen, little guy. Uh, and only God, only God, our triune God, only God deserves that type of worship and love and devotion from us. John Owen says this, the goal of the Christian life is not external conformity or mindless action, but a passionate love for God informed by the mind and embraced by the will. You me say that again? The goal of the Christian life is not external conformity or mindless action, but a passionate love for God informed by the mind and embraced by the will. We use a, a phrase over and over because the Bible uses the phrase over and over, and the phrase is the gospel. The gospel. We are gospel people. The gospel is our story. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is our song. And the gospel is this. The gospel, well, let me tell you what the gospel is not. The gospel is not, if you clean up your act and you make yourself acceptable to God, and then you offer to him your righteousness that he will love you. That is not the gospel. That is legalism, and many of us were taught that that was the gospel at some point. If you do good things, God will love you. That's not the gospel of Scripture. The gospel of Scripture is that our God is holy, and we are sinful beyond what we can imagine, and in his love, he gave his son to live for us and to die for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is not, I do these things so that God will love me. The gospel is, I recognize the love that God has shown to me. Therefore, I want to obey him and love him and serve him and worship him. Those are very different paradigms. And that's what John Owen is getting at right there. It is not going to be our white-knuckled desire to do all the right things that's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to understand and embrace the love of God and to love Him so passionately that our love for God drives out our love for the world. 
There's a sermon that was, this can be read, you can find it online for free by Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You know, old dead guys just thought and wrote differently than we do. But you go read that sermon, meditate on that sermon, share that sermon. The expulsive power of a new affection. Here's what he says. If you want to battle against the sin in your life, if you want to battle against the idolatry of your life, then you need something that's so powerful and you need to set your mind and your heart so clearly on that thing that your love for that thing drives out your love for all those other things. And it's a love for God. It's a love for Christ. It's a love for the people of God that is to drive out that love for the world and that love for self and that desire for the pleasures that are momentary and fleeting. So we battle against these temptations with our love. It is love that overcomes our fears. It is love that drives out the enemy. We battle for, for purity in the Christian life by reorienting reorienting our heart's desire around the love for Christ and not for ourselves. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. This is the, this is the song and, the, and the, the statement for all believers. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's his love and his sacrifice that fuels our love for him and our obedience to him. As believers, our battle against the temptations of the world begins not with something that we need to do, but something that we need to believe. It starts with us believing the gospel. It starts with us understanding our sin for what it is and, and understanding the amazing love of God for what it is. It starts when our love for Christ drives out our love for the world. And, and as Christians, our identity is in Christ, not the world not the things of the world. And there's a promise that we read about just a few minutes ago when we were reading in Revelation. It says this in Revelation 17, 14, these, meaning the beast and, the pro and, and Babylon, will make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and they that are with him, called and chosen and faithful, we will overcome by his strength. Love Him. Pursue Him. If you are a believer in Christ, if you follow Him, then you will overcome the world. 1 John 5 says this, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Joel Beakey, I'll, I'll end with this. Joel Beakey in his commentary on this passage says this, by nature we are weak. You want to confess that? You want to identify with that? Amen. As believers we have to. By nature we are weak. We cannot stand up to the advances of this woman of the world apart from Christ. Only by exercising faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can we hope to escape the clutches of the world. He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God is born of God and will overcome the world. Our strength to overcome this woman and this beast is our genuine love for the one who loved us. And he loved us first, he tells us. So let's pray together. Having read and studied a sobering passage, let us pray and ask the Lord to guide us, to protect us, to comfort us with his truth, and to grow our love for him 
so that we can battle the temptations of the world. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the brothers and sisters gathered today to hear your word and to study your word and to respond to it. And I pray that by your spirit, you would allow us to do that, to lodge these truths in our minds and in our hearts, and then it would fuel our lives. Let us be those who can battle against the temptations of the world based upon our greater love for you, who you are and what you've done. Lord, Move among us in these moments as we, as we resolve to repent of sin, as we resolve to be faithful to your word, as we sing in response and as we prepare to go. Father, would you move among us and would you convict us? Would, your, would you allow your spirit to lodge these truths where they need to be so that we can go from this place prepared? Lord, I pray this trusting in you and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.